Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course, straight from the tap at our website, SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from my home studio in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeremy Goldcorn is off this week, but sitting in for us is our dear friend David Moser, academic director of the CET program in Beijing. David is the man who taught a generation of young TV-watching Chinese to speak English and is therefore chiefly responsible for most of your bad service industry experiences in China. David, we've missed you. <laughs> Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, I'm not responsible for that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You can't. But I'll have you know that a lot of beautiful women come up to me randomly and say, "Ah, oh, are you Mo Lao Shi?" And then they say, "I watched you when I was a kid." Right. It's a it's a great feeling. Ruin, it ruins the effect, but but it does give me all the time. I listened to your band when I was in grade school. <laughs> Kaiser Lao Shi, Guo Lao Shi, or or worse, <laughs> oh, yeah, uncle, uncle. I get uncles sometimes. Anyway, yeah, it's you know, sexual invisibility to you know, nubile young women is one of the. The, the, the small prices we pay for the maturity and wisdom. We're getting we old. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, if you've lived in China long enough, you'll have noticed that whenever the Chinese propaganda apparatus wants to fan the flames of anti-American sentiment domestically, you know, to that same TV watching audience whose English was forever hobbled by Mr. Moser's dodgy pedagogy, um, when, when it wants to whip <laughs> us up a little uh, anti-American animus, uh, it runs a lot of Korean War-related films. And conversely, when it wants to signal warming, it will... You know, emphasize sign of cooperation during the Second World War. So today, with Jeremy away and thus being free to talk about a topic that's purely U.S.-China, uh, we're going to indulge in a little optimism by delving into that that optimistic topic. Uh, and we're going to be talking about American flyers in China uh, during World War II. Uh, we're joined today by Melinda Liu, who is there with David in Beijing. Melinda was last on our show just before I left China in a live episode that we did at the Bookworm in May of last year looking at the 50th anniversary of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Melinda is one of the longest-serving foreign correspondents in China. She opened the Newsweek Bureau back in 1980 and has served as Newsweek's bureau chief in China since 1998. She also has a legendary collection of Central Asian carpets. Melinda recently shot a short documentary about the Doolittle Raiders in China, and she has a close personal connection to those famed American flyers that we're going to be talking about with her. Melinda, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be here, Kaiser. We're also joined by John Kamen, uh, Beijing-based bureau chief of the Los Angeles Times, the object of bitter hatred, as I recently learned, by the strident jingoists of that infamous country of militant nationalism, Canada. John, is this this is your first time on the show, right? Uh, I've been on the show before. I was with uh, I, I spoke I, I spoke about air pollution with Jeremy many years oh, ago. Don't. I'm sorry. I, I, well, I wasn't there, so it doesn't count. Anyway, glad to finally have you on. <laughs> Well, it didn't do any good. No, right. still here. The air pollution is still here. How'd you know about my Canada thing? You've been doing some digging. No, no, no. Remember, we had dinner uh, last time I was back in Beijing, and we talked about it for quite some time. We, yeah, we talked oh, about yeah, James yeah, yeah, and yeah. Kazakhstan and you in Canada. We're talking about. Uh, yes, I felt yep, left yep. out because I'm not like hated by a whole nation of people. The Kazakhstan of of North America, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's get going, Kaiser. Um, it's, so it's uh, really interesting that you've both chosen an interest in this period. Uh, and the topic of American flyers, but but I notice neither of you is focusing on what is arguably the most famous chapter in this aviation history during the war, which is the American volunteer group, better known as the Flying Tigers. Everyone knows that. I had a Flying Tiger model airplane when I was a kid, and before I even knew what they were. So I suppose this brings up the question, were the Flying Tigers just better at branding <laughs> than, than the Hump Flyers or the, or the Doolittle Raiders or later groups of aviators? Or is there something more intrinsically romantic and compelling about that episode in the war. 
My personal theory is that, yes, they were better at branding. When you have a name like Flying Tigers, it's, it's just so cool. <laughs> it is. And also, they got, they got John Wayne to play in their movie. Oh, that's so, right. So, of course, I mean, how can, you, how can you compete with that? They had John Wayne, Children. and they, they had that great shark's <laughs> mouth on the, on the, on the Curtis, was it, the P-40, uh, which exactly. is pretty amazing. And, you know, it translates so well in Chinese, fei hu dui, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, of course, from the, from the Chinese point of view, it was... It had to be much more famous because it was the the, the great pet project of uh, Madame Jiang Kai-shek. And anything she touched, of course, was blown out of all proportion to what it really was. Right. I guess maybe it would be useful for us to do a little potted history of the, the Flying Tigers since you know, it's what we're not going to be talking about. Uh, as, as Melinda, you said they were actually... Uh, the pet project of, of Madame Sung Meiling. She she leaned on Claire Chenault to, to put them together. He was a retired U.S. Army Air Corps officer, and he he was in China, I guess, from 37, from August of 37 on, if Wikipedia is correct on this. I'm looking at this right now. Uh, yeah. And what actually, well, what made the Flying Tigers um, very famous from the Chinese point of view is that they were, they were considered Chinese. They were American volunteers helping helping the Chinese Air Force. And so even, you know, no matter how, how you look at it, um, you know, the Chinese had some some uh, ownership of, of that enterprise, whereas the Doolittle Raiders just kind of dropped out of the sky. No one, even, None of the Chinese even knew they were coming. Right. In fact, the news was sort of kind of kept from the Chinese. And, 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 um, plus they had that volunteer yeah. thing. They were sort of Abe Lincoln Brigade, right? They were, they were you know, America was not yet in the war. And uh, these were, you know, Americans who, who saw the plight of China and, and wanted to get... Although I'm looking at the, the dates now. They were only active from December 12th, 1941. So presumably they had gotten, you know, organized well before that, before we had entered the war. But they were only actually active, looks like, for less than seven months until only July 4th, 1942. Uh, but it looks like in that time they, they, they took out nearly 300 Japanese aircraft, which is really very impressive considering there were only, what, you know, 100 or so of them, right? Yeah, I mean, they had a, a very amazing record in terms of aviation kills and things like that. They did live up to their name in that way. Yeah, yeah. But they had gone through a number of reorganizations, though, and it, you know, it got a little bit... I think if you go back to some of the American military pilots who looked upon the Flying Tigers at that time, there was a little bit of resentment because they were paid much better. <laughs> they, they were paid a lot. <laughs> well, yeah. The branding is the branding. Well, Melinda, I dare say the Flying Tigers and their exploits are probably more well-known to Chinese, even younger generation Chinese, than, than most Americans. Uh, a couple years ago, two years ago, I was asked to do some uh, music arranging for a, a full-scale musical production in Beijing based on the memoirs of, of the widow, uh, Anna Chenault, and it was actually funded by Anna, I think, with some Chinese government support. And the pro this 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 project was called a thousand springs Chuntian, right and it was in commemoration of the seventieth anniversary of the Flying Tigers campaign, but of course it was mainly a love story based on their meeting and falling in love you don't you don't make a a musical out of uh, you know wars and bombings and stuff and it was and it was uh, well attended and received in Beijing. I think there were a lot of young people in the audience so it seems or do you do you think these events are still relevant today in China, especially to the younger generation? I think it. I think it helps very much that the Flying Tigers incorporates um, a, a major love story. I mean, the, the story of Claire Chenault and uh, um, Anna Chenault is is very romantic, and therefore you can make a movie out of it, you can make books out of it, and young people will like it. Um, and um, and she, you know, she had her own personality, so there was a personality, a Chinese personality there that people could relate to. Um, I I personally think though that all of these American flyers who played a role in World War II China are kind of getting a new lease on life now. Uh, to some Chinese, young Chinese, this this is really the first time they've really kind of understood a lot of it because um, for for a long time the Chinese government didn't really didn't really want to deal with World War II as an international event. It wanted to deal with it as the the Chinese war against Japanese aggression and mm -hmm. and, and right. some of these other international players were not very well uh, well portrayed. Um, but now there's, I mean, today there are at least two feature films that I know of about the Doolittle Raiders that's, that's under production. Um, as you say, the Flying Tigers are hugely popular. The Hump Pilots, which John will talk about and knows a lot about, um, 
you know, in some ways, their stories are are the most rollicking tales of all. Mm -hmm, Um, And there are museums strung out in Western China, especially in Yunnan, that... uh, that um, commemorate them cover yeah. that angle very well. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk exactly. about the, the sort of political usages to w- which these flyers have been put. But uh, Melinda, I, I, I one of the things about being Chinese American, uh, at least for many of us, is that we both feel a real immediate family connection to modern Chinese history. I mean, my father grew up in Chongqing during the war, and I grew up listening to him reminisce about the near daily raids by the Japanese bombers and signaling system with the lanterns on the hilltops and stuff, and about running to the bomb shelters with his father's manuscripts in hand and his little brother on. On his back. Uh, he just loved to talk about the American fighters that he'd see. I mean, he says that he saw flying tigers in Chongqing, but as far as I know, they weren't actually active uh, in that part of the country, though definitely some of the Curtis P-40s did keep the shark's mouths on, so that's probably what he saw. And they, 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 they did fight in the skies over Chongqing. But anyway, he, he just he was a kid who just loved the American planes, and he knew them all by silhouette, you know, the P-38s and the, the later on the, 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 the Mustangs, the P-41s. But anyway, last time we talked to you, Melinda, uh, you shared some anecdotes about your brother and his experience uh, in the Cultural Revolution. So today we're going to talk about your father also and about his role in helping one of the Doolittle Raiders after he bailed out over Zhejiang, I think it was, following the Tokyo bombing in April of uh, 1942, and about some of the work that you're doing. So, uh, you know, let's all set that up. Who, who were these Doolittle Raiders and, and what did they do on April 18th, 1942? And, and what was your dad's role in all of this? I, I became interested in this because my father was involved with them, and I'll tell you why. Uh, first of all, the Doolittle Raiders were a legendary group of American aviators led by a famous daredevil aviator and pilot, Jimmy Doolittle, who was tasked by President Roosevelt to put together a secret mission immediately after Pearl Harbor. It was supposed to be America's revenge and vindication for Pearl Harbor, and it was a secret mission to transport a group of American medium bombers on an aircraft carrier when these particular airplanes, the B-25s, had never been on an aircraft carrier before. They had never taken off from an aircraft carrier before. And this was able to inject an element of surprise because their mission was to bomb Tokyo. Now, what makes this important is that the Japanese thought their home islands were untouchable. They were on a roll in Asia. They were racking up military victories far from their own borders, far from Japan. And they just didn't believe that there was any possibility that they could be vulnerable at home on their home territory. So the White House wanted to change that equation, raise American morale, which was in bad shape after Pearl Harbor, and teach the Japanese a lesson, basically. And so a very daring scheme was devised to use bombers that had never taken off from an aircraft carrier before, train pilots to fly those bombers by just marking off a very short <laughs> runway and saying, you know, on this mark, you you leave the ground, <laughs> and on that mark, you're, you know, you're there. They had actually never flown off, off an aircraft carrier until the actual mission. And then they were supposed to bomb Tokyo and other Japanese cities, and then because of fuel limitations, they, and of course, they weren't able to land again on an aircraft carrier, so they were going to land at airfields in China. Uh That was the plan. Almost immediately, this plan didn't quite work. The task force, the carrier task force was sighted by a Japanese picket boat far from Japan 12 hours before they were due to take off. And then Doodlittle had to make a decision, either abort the whole mission and, you know, the, the, the task force would just head back home or take off early. And he chose to do the latter. Which meant they weren't going to make the airfields, right? Well, that's the problem. Everything else went fine. They bombed Tokyo. They bombed the targets they were supposed to bomb. But they didn't, because they had to take off further away, they didn't have enough fuel to get to the airfield. And there were other problems. Because they were early, the Chinese weren't ready for them. Indeed, the Chinese didn't, had no idea that they were coming. Um, so instead of landing at airstrips in China, it had become, the pilots thought was a sort of a suicide mission. They didn't. They were probably going to run out of fuel before they even got to land. At the very last minute, however, a miraculous tailwind propelled 
uh, almost all of them overland in China, just not to where they were supposed to land, uh, the airstrip, but close enough to China that they could conceive of bailing out or even making emergency landings, I mean, crash inverse landings. Inverse divine wind. That's good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And um, lo and behold, uh, that's what happened to 15 out of the 16 aircraft. The 16th had lost so much fuel, something had been wrong with the carburetor, so it actually knew it was never going to make it anywhere close to China, so it headed straight to Vladivostok and landed in the Soviet Union. Um, and those guys were actually interned for the rest of the war oh, uh, by the Soviets. With friends like these. <laughs> but anyway, exactly. <laughs> they they were they hadn't joined the war by that time, so they that's right, what stopped right, right. them from... T- being too much of overt assistance. Okay, so here are these Americans basically falling out of the sky, um, landing all over the Chinese coast. I mean, most of them in Jiangsu, Anhui, Zhejiang. Zhejiang had a a whole bunch of them, but some of them very far away, Fujian, uh, uh, Jiangxi. And and some of them didn't even land together because they were bailing out. They landed, you know, there were five crew in every plane. They would bail out one at a time. And so literally, they were just all over the place. And once they landed, very perilously, those who were not captured immediately by the Japanese had to rely on the the kindness of Chinese strangers to help them and uh, help them get to their ultimate destination, which was Chongqing. And my father happened to be, just happened to be in a little village in Zhejiang when one of these crews uh, landed nearby. Some strangers came to him in the middle of the night and said, do you speak English? And he said, well, yeah, I've been to university. I I learned some English. Oh, my God. (laughs) And so they said, okay, come with us. And so he went with them not knowing what was going on. He he himself was traveling. He He was actually waiting in a little town to be smuggled across Japanese lines to get to the interior, you know, what we, what they call free China. Free China. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so he was sort of like a Chinese squanto. I mean, just happened to so be unbelievable. So he <laughs> was pushed into a room and there were these five disheveled, muddy, scared Americans. And nobody, you know, knew how to communicate with anybody else until he got there. And he started speaking with them and very quickly helped clear up some misunderstandings because the Chinese had wanted the Americans to give up their weapons and the Americans didn't want to give up their weapons. And so, you know, these little, there was some anxiety there in the room. But as soon as my father helped both sides understand each other, then, you know, things started happening. Banquets were laid on by people, you know, lots of friendly this and that. Um, Sedan chairs were organized to help these guys uh, travel. Um, One of the big problems, of course, was they had to evade Japanese patrols because the coast is where the Japanese had were already in occupation um, of much of China and controlling other parts. And so, um, uh, very unfortunately, a number of um, these Doolittle Raiders, as they were called, were um, captured by the Japanese. Mm. And uh, three of them were executed. One of them died of malnutrition in a, in a POW camp. But miraculously, 64 of those 80 aviators made it all the way to Chongqing. And my father helped mainly crew number two, but then met many more of them where they, you know, were kind of gathering in groups and was their translator, their fixer, their friend, and um, said goodbye to them at an airstrip in in the interior of China. And everyone thought that would be the end of it. But um, after the war, my father went to the States to study, to continue his studies in aeronautical engineering, actually. And one day he was in Minnesota where he was studying at the University of Minnesota and he opened up a newspaper and there was an article that said, this group of men known as the Doolittle Raiders are having a reunion in Minneapolis. And so he said, hey, I know those guys. And he just sort of showed up. (laughs) Oh, my God. And became reunited with them. And because he was now in the States, they made him an honorary member of the Doolittle Raiders. And because this group had annual reunions, you know, he started attending regularly. He yeah. and my yeah, he he and 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 me and my my brothers, uh, we grew up knowing these guys. You know, <laughs> General Doolittle and all these wow. people. We'd see them very often. That's so amazing. And it changed the so course of your the life story. completely too. I mean, literally, some it, it fell out of the sky and changed your life, right? <laughs> well, they certainly changed my father's life, and um, I think 
you know, it's it's very possible that had he not met them, he might not have been inspired to go to the States and, you know, to really, I mean, he wanted to go to the States and study, but, you know, it took a little bit of oomph to get, get him there at the end of the war. And, um, and they helped him get a job with the American Air Force. He ended up being an aeronautical engineer for for the American Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, oh, wow. which is where I grew up. So, yeah, I would say it was a it was a game-changing experience for our family. I mean, it sounds like it should be a feature film, but instead you've so far just made a documentary. Uh, you, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Right. Well, that, that kind of came almost by accident. It was, you know, I mean, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, but I took it upon myself to start collecting oral histories about the Doolittle Raiders, not just from the Raiders themselves and their relatives, you know, only one of those 80 pilots is still alive today. Mm. In fact, he just had a, a birthday like a couple of days ago, Colonel Dick Cole. He was Doolittle's co-pilot, actually, and now he's 102 years oh, yeah. old. Yeah, well, I mean, it was 75 years ago. I, oh, my God. So, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but also from the Chinese side, I, I felt that there was not enough generally known about the Chinese side of that story, you know, stories like my father. I, I even feel like I didn't, I, I know way too little about my father and the, and the Raiders. And, and that's a deep regret I have because he passed away a few years ago. So I've been interviewing people and keeping, keeping these tapes. And then, um, one of the the sort of the community of of great supporters and friends of the Doodle Raiders, a corporate member of that community came to me and wanted to finance a, a very short film about the Doolittle Raiders that could be shown at a commemoration of their 75th anniversary this year. So I used some of the existing footage I had. I hired a very talented young cameraman to help me shoot some new footage, and we put together a 10-minute film, documentary film. Uh, so where can our listeners see it? Well, there's uh, it's an open Vimeo page. Yeah, there's Vimeo link. I'll, I'll make sure to put a link to that on the podcast page. Okay, okay, great. I watched it the other day. One of the interesting things that throughout, every time the Japanese are referred to by one of the old guys, they call them Ruben Guiza. Uh, you, right. You translate that in the subtitles right. as... Japanese when it's really, I mean, it's a strongly pejorative. Japs, yeah, more, more like Japs, Japs or, or Nips Japs. or Japanese, Japanese literally devils. Japanese devils. Um, right. I mean, it's it's different than using a racial epithet in a modern American context. I mean, because you know, look, these people were very much victimized by the Japanese during the war. But so, what 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 made you decide to go with Japanese, just sort of a non pejorative? That's a very good question, and the the reason I did it is because the. The people in the film who are using this term, Japanese devils, they actually... That's, all, that's the only word they know. <laughs> uh, yes. They, they, well, that's, yeah. that's, they think they're just saying Japanese. I well, mean, yeah, that's it, what it, I hear all the time. They said, well, that's just what we used to say. Exactly. Yeah. They, they actually are so used to using that phrase that even people who, you know, if you, if you actually pinpointed them, called them on it, they might... They might say, oh, yeah, I didn't really mean to use to say devils, but they just use that word. I mean, you know, two of these guys were like, you know, octogenarians in the film. And, and um, you know, of course, they were and they had been victims of, of Japanese germ warfare campaigns. And so, of course, their emotions about Japanese are very fearful and angry and all that. But when they say this phrase, Japanese devils, they don't actually put that emotion into that phrase they actually think they're just saying japanese and it's it's even intellectuals even young people they they use this phrase just because that's that's what everyone yes on says Chi- in chinese tv japanese. and the equivalent of the history channel on, on chinese tv the voiceover announcer will you know say urban grades as, as just as you know it's the nazis then you know it's part of the course here exactly the hard right so right. that 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 right. was my thinking i mean i felt that it was so widespread, that, that usage was so widespread among the people I interviewed that they weren't even thinking about it meaning devils. They were just thinking that it meant Japanese. So I made that call. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I don't know if it's better or worse that it's so commonplace. But uh, Yeah, I'm not sure either. So, by the way, Kaiser, you made you made fun of me for teaching English, but look at Melinda's father with just a little bit of English. It changed everyone's <laughs> life here. Thank you. Always, I Wait, we don't, we don't know that it was just a little bit of English. And, uh, 
<laughs> so we, certainly we'll, we'll, changed we'll a number up. of people's <laughs> lives. Let's let's talk about the effects of the raid itself. I mean, by modern military standards, the damage they actually inflicted on Tokyo was not not so big. I mean, their casual casualty rates were, were pretty high. They basically had to ditch their planes, and so you know the whole thing was very 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 costly. Um, so you, you you talked about it as being a moral victory and everything. Um, what was the impact on Japan? Did it really demoralize them? Uh, and and is it? Do you think it's a rightly uh, celebrated chapter of the war? Um, of course, there is controversy about that. And and right after, uh, Doolittle himself was t- terribly depressed. He thought he was going to be court-martialed oh, wow. because they lost all the planes. You know, sixteen <laughs> planes were supposed to be turned over to China. Yeah. They're completely lost. You know, several of the men have been captured. Of course, at the time he didn't know how many. Several, you know, a couple of them died in the landing and. Uh, in, in all, 17 aviators were lost for all or part of the war, either due to death, imprisonment, or injury. So militarily, it didn't do that much damage. It, it was sort of like a pinprick. However, from a strategic point of view, it did have quite an effect. Mm. And at the time when Doolittle was kind of morose and saying, I'm going to be court-martialed, his, his navigator said, no, Colonel, you're going to become a general? You're going to get a medal, and everyone's going to be famous. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Why? For the following reasons. In Japan, it completely debunked the idea of Fortress Japan. Mm-hmm. It, it taught the Japanese that they are indeed vulnerable at home. Therefore, number two, it forced Japan to expend more resources to defend the home islands. These would have been resources that could have been spent conquering the rest of Southeast Asia. In America, it was a very much needed boost for American morale. You know, think about it. This was just a few months after Pearl Harbor. The Japanese had been on a roll in the Pacific, and suddenly this miraculous secret thing happened. And nobody, you know, it took months for people to find out that it ha- that these planes actually launched from an aircraft carrier. Uh, when asked about it, Roosevelt simply said they were launched from... Shangri-La. And he didn't (laughs) reveal that it was a, so it was like a real miracle. And most importantly, it forced the Japanese to totally rethink and reanalyze their strategy in in the Pacific. And, you know, there are scholars who say it prodded Admiral Yamamoto, who, of course, was such a key figure at Pearl Harbor. He was actually a little bit reluctant to kind of rile up the Americans, because he would say it would awaken a sleeping dragon. But anyway, it it fed his obsession with dealing a knockout blow to American aircraft carriers in the Pacific. Hmm. You know, he figured out that this was a carrier war in the Pacific, and he he had a plan to deal a death blow to the Americans at Midway. Ah, right. And, of course, the fact of the Doolittle mission just exacerbated that obsession and, as we now know, uh, Midway turned out to be a decisive uh, blow to the Japanese and a turning point of the war. And what paved the way for Midway was the Doolittle Raid. That's what made the Japanese crazy that, that you know, these pesky, these pesky <laughs> aircraft could kind of come from nowhere and bomb them at home on their home turf. And so Yamamoto went out uh, deciding to, to risk all to, to decimate the American carrier fleet, and he miscalculated badly. Excellent. Melinda, that's that's really fascinating. We've got lots more to talk to you about, um, but I'm going to turn now to John, uh, who's been sitting there quietly. <laughs> so, hi, hi guys. Hey, John. Still here. Uh, I'm glad to hear it. I mean, he's had two bottles of beer, so don't, right. don't worry right. about it. He's good. He's good. So, um, the story that you put out in the LA Times. I mean, I, I, let me just quickly sketch it. It's it's a, it's about this legend, really, in Lolo Land, in in the part of of Sichuan in northern Yunnan, where the Yi people live. Uh, they are an ethnic minority. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about them. Uh, supposedly had a white slave. There, this is a kind of common legend there, apparently, who was probably a hump flyer. He was brought down from the sky, and then they, they actually kept him as a slave because this was a, a minority nationality that practiced slavery well into into the last century. So how did you get put onto this story in the first place, and, and how what was it about it that got you so obsessed with it? I mean, if it's not already obvious on the face of it, what's, what's so interesting? Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, so okay. Um, I, I I first heard this story in 2009 while I, I was traveling through the area on a Fulbright grant. I was studying ethnomusicology. Uh, I, I'd heard um, I'd heard 
these people's folk songs um, while um, while traveling through the area a couple years prior, and they and they really they really struck me. They really struck a chord. They were as it were these beautiful sort of fal- fal- as it were these beautiful sort of falsetto strains that sort of just kept on straining upwards, kind of like the the mountains. Just these beautiful songs, and so I went back and I spent about four months in the area, and I heard this story. Over and over and over, I would take these buses um, to tiny mountain villages to find um, some elderly man or woman who could sing this one song that nobody else could sing. And she would um, she would sit me down and you know maybe throw a couple of potatoes on the fire. They eat a lot of potatoes down there. And then she would tell me this story, and it was remarkably similar every time I heard it. It was this American pilot who crash landed near a small village. The villagers sort of pulled him from the wreckage and took him into the into the village, and they'd never seen a foreigner before, and they'd never seen a plane before, um, so they couldn't quite figure out who he was and where he came from. So the village elders held council and decided that he was, in fact, a gift sent by the gods to become their slave, <laughs> and they held him for 10 a years. <laughs> Which is a natural conclusion. <laughs> they held him for 10 years before the communists came in in 1956, and um, and abolished the slave system and sent him home. They rescued him. And so I kept on hearing the story and um, and I wanted to know more. You know, it was just sort of a, a wonderful little setup. So I looked on Google and I found nothing. And I, um, and I looked in a local museum and I found nothing. And I, I looked, I tried to get into some archives and the government turned me away. Nobody who told me the story knew a name. Um, nobody had a flight number. Nobody had a photo or a piece of his uniform or anything that I could track back to an individual. So I began calling, this was a, a few years later after I became a journalist, I began calling World War II experts. And they all kind of told me the same thing. You know, I would just tell them the story. You know, there's this, you, you know, this guy, he became a slave, he was rescued by the communists. And then I would say, "Is it, have you heard this before? Is it true? And um, they said, well, you know, I've never heard that story before, but it could be true for two reasons. And the first is during World War II, when uh, Chiang Kai-shek had been backed into a corner by Japan, he was in this bombed out wartime capital, Chongqing. And Japan at that point was really waging a war of logistics. They were cutting off supply routes from Guangzhou and, and Vietnamese ports to basically choke the nationalists of food and, and fuel and arms. And in 1942, they really closed the, the last route, the Burma Road. It was sort of this, this real man versus nature, 750-mile road through the mountains of Burma. And the U.S., as sort of a gesture of allied support, decided to keep supporting him by initiating an airlift from northeastern India. And they called it the Hump. And it was probably the most dangerous aviation route in history. So you had these pilots in their late teens, early 20s, sort of small small town, down home American men flying mostly unpressurized planes over really the most unpredictable weather system in the world. And so they would fly too high and their wings would ice up and they'd crash or they would get stuck in the fog and have to fly by instruments. But the gauges weren't very good because there were no real maps of the territory. So they would crash into mountains and, and their engines would explode. And literally, something like 1,300 Americans went missing flying this route. Not even dead, but, but missing. Like, cases still open. Mm. That's the, so it, it very well could have been one of them. The second reason is that when Mao finally swept into Lolo Land, or Liangshan, in 1956, this was probably, despite all of the Chinese propaganda about the American flyers now, one of the lowest points in Sino-U.S. relations in recent history. Um, the Korean War had ended three years prior, and America was the enemy. So if Mao did find an American living in a small village in a minority area in the Southwest, he wouldn't have sent him home. You know, there wouldn't have been this heroic homecoming. He would have kept him or killed him. Right. And so I began to wonder, given these two factors, whether the E... Um, you know, these people, this slave-owning society in southern Sichuan knew something about one of these flyers that the rest of the world did not. And I began to wonder whether the clues to this sort of mystery lay in the details of, of this folk story. And, and that's what, what really got me obsessed. Hmm. 
You know, this this account sort of reminds me of the cargo cults yes. <laughs> of yeah. the South Pacific, yeah. where American soldiers would land on a different ending, or yeah. drop the cargo, and, and then these these stories gradually became the stuff of myth. And then in the case of the cargo cults, are religion, right? Absolutely. Uh, so there, but it's, it's it's interesting because there's so many deta- tantalizing sort of details in, in your account here, and also you said there was a lot of consistency. You basically, it was the same story tremendous, again, yeah. again and again. But but. Other than the fact that it's likely that some soldier landed, you know, American flyer landed there, and you're, you're right, we don't. If he had gone home, you're probably right. There would be a homecoming, and, and you mm-hmm. wouldn't have been the one who would be curious yeah, right. about this. It would yeah. already be in the yeah. annals of history, right? So, so what about the? Is it, what is the evidence that this is more than just a, an incident that's uh, that's sprung up into a folk legend, and and really there, there, that's where it ends because you can't separate the fact from reality, just as with the cargo cults. Well, okay, so oral history can be an incredibly difficult thing to parse. Um, so just because somebody tells you, you know, I was I was there, I saw this thing happen, I saw it myself, doesn't mean they really understood, the, you know, in full detail what they were seeing or, or, or how to parse it themselves. So, so that raises this question of how you know what information to trust and what's real and what's not and how you verify it. Um, but I figured if enough people tell you this thing with with such a striking amount of overlap, you can assume it to be at least somewhat true, or you can at least trace these details back to um, to kernels of truth. So I, the, the, I think that the visual metaphor that really helps in, in tr- sort of trying to envision my, my past several years as, as I've been looking into this case is is sort of a set of Russian dolls. So you have a, as the outermost doll this this strange myth, you know, in Southwest China about this American slave. But when you start really asking people questions and you start really digging into this, you can peel the layers away until you arrive at things that you really can verify and that really are true. And I think the story emerges from how these stories, these smaller stories, intertwine. I mean, that's that's a, that's a lot, you know, and and it's a complicated story. I've been looking at it for many years, but but what I really love about this story is that it it started with this kernel. With this, with this story, you know, and it, and it really snowballed um, into something much, much bigger. Colonel K E R N E L, not the actual. Yeah, C O L O N. Yeah, right, right. So, John, um, the Yi people uh, who live in in the mountainous parts of Yunnan, Sichuan, and Liangshan, um, they're I think one of the more fascinating ethnic minorities in China. I've always thought. I mean, I love their get-ups. It's the sort of black and silver <laughs> yeah, right. thing. They're very metal. Get yeah. get-ups. <laughs> what kind of? A, okay. As an anthropologist. Uh, uh, I resent that remark. <laughs> well, we don't. That's not the term of art. <laughs> yeah, you heavy metal right. players and your get-ups. Right, right, right. <laughs> anyway, I mean they're not, but they're not a cuddly minority, right? I mean the way some other. No, that's uh, true. They're not like the Hani no, or, or the Mwaso or whatever. Right. They're they're. Um, and they were a slave. Yeah, they were slaves. Oh, yeah. yeah, they yeah, definitely yeah. had slaves. Yeah. I mean, if if you listen to uh, this podcast we with Mike Meyer uh, about his his last book about Manchuria in, at the beginning of it, I I. I cajole him into telling this story, which he ended up putting in his most recent book about his encounter with some drunken e-dudes on a, a bus in Sichuan when he was a Peace Corps volunteer um, back in the mid-90s, where, you know, that involves a death and, and you know, several, and, and like police beatings. And, and it's just, it's a really, really ugly, super violent story. Uh, as are most of the stories that I hear from people involving, you know, the Yi. Uh, but so you got to set the record straight here. I mean, rescue these people from the, the stereotypes that have been layered on to them. Uh, what are they really like, the Yi? Sure. Well, okay. Well, the Yi have an image problem. Oh, sure. Um, they, they and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they also have a lot of very real problems. Um, so th- there are about 7 million of them living in Yunnan, Sichuan, and, and Guizhou. But they're sort of spiritual home. You know, when they talk about, you know, p- the purest Yi people, they point to this place called the Dalyangshan Yi Autonomous Prefecture, which translates to the Great Cool Mountains. Um, and it's in southern Sichuan. It's incredibly mountainous, incredibly remote, about 2.2 million E live there. And just to give you a sense of, of how isolated and, and impoverished this place is, the three or four counties in, in, um, in Liangshan's far northeast, um, the ones that are considered the most most sort of ethnically pure, almost everybody who lives there is E, their average income is lower than Somalia. So we're talking like deep sub-Saharan levels of poverty. So for many centuries, it, it was a closed completely isolated caste-based slave-owning society. So upper caste E owned lower caste E and and made them work the fields. But, uh, you know, 
I, when I went and I, I spent several months there, I found them to be enormously hospitable when you, when you break through the surface. They have a beautiful oral culture, amazing songs, sort of this amazing folk religion with shamans that exercise demons in sort, sort of divine auspicious dates. Everybody I met, you know, fed me and took me in and wanted to share their, their, their songs and their stories. And I, I found sort of bit by bit as I was recording down there that this story about the American slave, it, it sort of, it fit with this oral tradition. They were, they were proud of it. It was like, it sort of harkened back to this time before the communists came of, of great pride and, and independence. So one time a, an e-friend told me, you know, not only did we own Han slaves, we also owned, owned an American. He says proudly. Well, that, that brings up... <laughs> that luckily you, you didn't become number two. <laughs> Were you a little but, uh, worried about that? <laughs> no. This that but you say an American. Uh, th- these were pretty chaotic times, and there were the, presumably other kinds of uh, you know war refugee or war you know uh, losses there. How, how and then how confident can you be that this was actually an American? In fact, how did they know it was an American? You right. Know, yeah. Right. Well, so so it's complicated. So I, I think I discovered fairly early in the story that I wasn't about to find, you know, like the, the, the Rosetta Stone that brings it all together, that snaps it into focus. Like I, I couldn't find a secret document or or some guy with a, a big beard living in a cave down there and say, oh, <laughs> right. you're, you're, you're a Lieutenant Smith, you know. And you, yeah. But um, Mr. Livingston, I presume, Dr. Livingston. I presume, exactly. Yeah, right. But there, there was a lot that I could ascertain. Um, you, you know, Americans did fall out of the sky, these hump pilots, right. especially in the LA Times story, I follow the story of of, um, of this guy named Garl Bud Ray, a down-home Texan pilot from, from Fort Worth who was flying a B-29 over the hump when his engine number three exploded and he bailed out and spent a month fighting his way out of Liangshan. And he was held at a house in the mountains for 10 days by a chief and he thought he that the chief was considering making him a slave or selling him as a slave you know there's a lot of ambiguity ambiguity there he contracted dysentery um there was a, a horrendous shootout um which which got cut from the LA Times piece but it was uh, well that's the stuff we wanted you to talk about i mean what 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 was ex- this extraordinarily story? Dr- dramatic in, encounter so the the pilots were walking along this river the Jean Shaw river they were, they were walking to the northeast to find an american weather station when all of a sudden, a, a sort of shooting fracas broke out uh, along the trail ahead of them between bandits, they, they assumed, and um, and a couple of E-warriors who um, who were tagging along or who, who were escorting them um, through the area for safe passage. And the thing lasted about a half an hour, and, and Garl, this this Texan pilot, was terrified. You know, he, he dove on the ground and covered his head with his hands and and then when it subsided, he walked up to, to where he'd heard the shooting. And one of the E escorts had killed this bandit and cut off his head oh, Lord. and tied a, a rope to his hair. And as they continued walking along the trail, he'd swing the head over over his own head, kind of like a hammer thrower, <laughs> to warn other bandits of, of encroachment. So just really, I'm violent, sorry, I, I'm not sure about the whole you know, reputation thing being not deserved anymore. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's pretty the best metal. part of the story. So Why this, did the LA Times this, cut that thing this, out? Yeah. This stuff, this stuff. I can't believe happened. the LA Times it cut that out. Happened. I mean, that they. I that was well, the best anecdote. <laughs> well, so there are a lot of stories like that, and it turns out the story tracks back to more than just the 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 that that one pilot who who fell from the sky. And and I have um, I you know I'm, I'm hoping to maybe turn this into a longer project down the road, so I don't want to give too much away. But but all of that said, I'm still researching the story. I'm, I, you know, reporters have the, this word um, saturation for when you hit the point while reporting something where you. You find that you're hearing the same answers from from your yeah. interviewees over and over again, and then you realize that you say like, okay, you know, I, I've probably hit that point with the story, and I can sit down and write well, it. Well, is that what happened? Yeah, I, because I you, still, been, you did this in 2014, and you waited three years. Is that like at yeah, saturation? Well, you decided, okay, I'm going to put well, this in Well, right. no. Well, so I still haven't hit saturation with the story. Okay. You know, I'm still uh, I'm still finding new things. So okay. I, I, even a couple weeks ago, a friend of mine, a Chinese um, sort of amateur historian who's devoted his life to, to researching this stuff, sent me a flight number um flight crew flight crew 426246 piloted by this guy Wayne T Mann who crashed into a mountain in Liangshan while flying the hump during World War II and 
no information exists about that crash beyond what I just told you. And I've looked everywhere and I've tried to find, I, I know Wayne T. Mann, that guy, died um, while flying in the States in 1951, but I don't know anything about the other crew members. Could it have been one of them? Maybe. You know, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a lead. You know, and the, the, you know, I only got to where I am now with this story by hearing these little bits of information and trying to follow them to the source. So, I, I mean, that's the thing about this story, and, and that's the thing. I think it, it really sort of hits on the nature of obsession, where you can keep on sort of getting closer and closer and closer to these truths, but, but never really get there. And also, it's a period of time in which, as advanced as these, uh, you know, pilots were and the technology was that we didn't have the internet and we didn't have WeChat <laughs> and we didn't have, you know, GPS and, and, and things, this kind of information. Some people could disappear and just really disappear. They, really, yeah, they could yeah, really yeah. disappear. And the, the E didn't speak Chinese and the Chinese didn't speak English and they didn't keep records. You know, I mean, we're talking about the, 19, the late 1940s when this happened. Right. Sort of in between then and now, China saw the, you know, collectivization and the great leap forward and the cultural revolution and then, and then 40 years of, of sort of untrammeled economic progress. And a lot has, has really genuinely been lost. Now, add to that China's or Beijing's attitude towards its own history and this historical nihilism campaign under right, Xi Jinping. Yeah. Archives are under lock and key. That's Stories right. that don't comport with the party's vision of you know its, its own history yeah. that sort of presents it as the, the savior of the people. Stay in the archives. They tend to, they tend to, they tend to vanish. Yeah. And um, and so that's something I've really confronted here. It's mm-hmm. been very very difficult. Mm-hmm. Do you have any personal theories? I mean, as to, I mean, what really happened throughout the rules of evidence? Hat off. Yeah, right. <laughs> Take your objectivity away. And, and well, I so I, I think I do have a, a very satisfying answer. But again, I'm I'm planning a, a bigger project. Okay, on so this, we won't so spoil. I, All right, I'm gonna good. We, we, we look forward to it. I want to turn now and 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 talk about sort of. Uh, the larger history. Let's ignore Basil Fawlty's famous advice and actually talk about the war here. Uh, <laughs> the war is it's now used in political discourse in China and in, in U.S.-China relations. So I want to know, first of all, like, so how were these various groups of flyers, the, the AVG, you know, the Tigers, uh, the Hump Flyers or the Hump Pilots and uh, Duels Raiders, how are they treated now in, in contemporary Chinese historiography? I mean, is there... I mean, is is the work you guys doing part of this sort of new resurgence of interest? I mean, Melinda, you, you talked about a, a kind of rekindled interest in this. Uh, and how does that fit into uh, Chinese retellings of the war? Um, I, I think as far as the Doolittle Raiders are concerned, there's definitely been a resurgence of interest. I mentioned that there are two feature films. They're, they're uh, Sino-U.S. co-productions are in the works. Um you know, part of the reason I got pulled into it is also because I had, you know, Chinese would come to me and say, hey, you know, come with me, let's look into this story, let's look into that story, let's interview these Chinese who rescued, helped rescue the Doolittle Raiders. And that fact is actually, I think, one of the reasons why this, the story of the Raiders has some resonance. It's because the the Chinese like the fact that that these these Americans fell out of the sky and were rescued by Chinese. So when CCTV put together a, a four-part documentary series, their documentary channel, a number of years ago, uh, each each episode was like an hour long, and the the title of the whole thing was "The Great Rescue." Uh-huh. You know, so and it and it was you know it was they they did a good job of interviewing all the flyers who were still alive at the time, um, but it it shows the Chinese also in a very very positive light because. The Americans were dependent on them to help save them from the Japanese and help them escape from the Japanese. And um, it's a good long narrative. Story, yeah, mm-hmm. long story short, a lot of them did. A remarkable number did. Similarly, I think the the Flying Tigers, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that that has resonance because they were part of the Chinese effort. I mean, they were integrally entwined with the Chinese Air Force effort. And the the hump pilots who I think in my mind were some of the unsung the, heroes. You know, the unsung heroes, I mean just the rocking and rollingest group of all. They made the war in the interior of China in these very remote places. They made it international because it was it, it was a very integrally linked with the Brits in India. India was the end of the lifeline that the the hump transport was all about. There were Americans involved. There were Chinese Americans involved. Some of them, 
amazing heroic pilots. Um, in fact, one of these Chinese American pilots was the pilot who flew Doolittle out of China after the raid, hmm. the Doolittle raid. And the funny thing about that is, you know, Doolittle himself was thought to be a daredevil pilot, but he knew how many people are supposed to fit into certain kinds of planes. And this, this guy kept adding more because he everywhere he stopped you know there would be refugees there would people people wanting to bring their family out you know it was getting kind of tense and in the end he had like twice as many passengers as he should have <laughs> and Doolittle says that was the most afraid he'd ever been in an airplane in his entire life <laughs> so i think there's there's great interest in all of this and now of course there are also resources mm to pursue that interest. Uh, so for example, one of the things I'm doing is I'm helping an organization called the Children of, Doolo of the Doolittle Raiders, who are uh, you know, an American organization. As the name implies, you know, many of these are, are children of Doolittle Raiders, uh, sons and daughters. And number one, there's a, a scholarship fund that they've set up with the middle school in Zhejiang, in the name of the Doolittle Raiders. And, you know, the, these kids were like writing essays about what do the Doolittle Raiders, what does their legacy mean for us? And they happened to be in a town uh, where the Raiders had spent quite quite some time sort of congregating. And um, they were writing these essays in English and uh, being awarded on the basis of their English language capabilities, which was, yes, a very, very great thing. Yeah, very um, in addition, yeah. yeah. And in the same city, um, the municipal government has has uh, earmarked a, a kind of a vintage traditional Chinese house to become a memorial hall to the Doolittle Raiders. So I'm helping them uh, collect uh, artifacts and photographs and posters and things from the children of the Doolittle Raiders to go on display in in this museum. And there's a second museum. There's, there's another one that's already open. And then there's a, a third museum, which I thought of, when when you David mentioned the cargo cult because it's actually a 115 year old hospital in Zhejiang province that had been built by british missionaries where a chinese doctor had been operating in april 1942 and a crew of the doolittle raiders ended up there because they were badly injured by the landing. They landed on a beach. Well, they tried to land on a beach in Zhejiang province. And at the last minute, one of the wheels of the airplane snagged on a rock. And oh. they just, wow. everyone, you know, four of them went through the windscreen. Oh, and anyway, so the injuries were horrific. And they knew they needed to get to a doctor. So they, they were transported a couple hundred kilometers to this missionary hospital where a Chinese doctor was. He had very little uh, in terms of medication or anesthetics. But fortunately, another Doolittle Raider airman who was, was a doctor also ended up there. And those two doctors operated on the most badly injured of this, of this group, this crew, who was Ted Lawson, whose leg actually had to be amputated under these conditions. Whoa. And to everyone's amazement, he survived. And he wrote a book called 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Well, he it was first a series in a magazine, then it was a book, and then it was made into a film that eventually won an Oscar, starred Spencer right. Tracy, not quite as good as John That's Wayne, but right. pretty good. That's right. And so now this museum is a memorial hall uh, that commemorates the Doolittle Raiders, and because they wanted to make it as full of artifacts from the time... Don't tell me they have his leg in formaldehyde there. No, no, they don't quite have that. But they've recreated the surgery and they've kept the building as much as possible uh, the way it looked in 1942. Uh, in other words, they restored it because it had ended up with like dozens of people living there and whatnot. And speaking of the cargo cult, you know, how did they know what it looked like in 1942? Right. Well, they looked at the movie. So there are pictures <laughs> and stills funny. from the film all wow. over in this museum because that's the, you know, with Spencer Tracy playing one of the, the Americans Life and everything. Art. <laughs> because that's yeah. the only documentation they have of anything close to, you know, what really was occurring in 1942. And indeed, you know, the the book had a lot of very good description about 
what that place looked like. And so you walk in there and it's the movie it's, set. It's, it's that <laughs> feeling of, that feeling of cargo yeah. cultness that yeah, was sort right. of there. It was and right. it's fascinating. And that's brilliant. And this uh you know, this hospital is so uh, prosperous now. They spend a million dollars to restore that building. Wow. So that's what I say. You know, now there's also resources for people to be historians and do mm-hmm. their own thing without necessarily being told by the government to tell the story one way or another. Yeah. Another way. So, John, are you feeling pressure Amazing. to tell the story one way or the other way? Has historiography uh, on the Hump Flyers sort of caught up to the sort of heroic reality of it in China? I mean, are is there a recognition of of their invaluable contribution to the success in the war maybe i mean there there yeah i mean there are these museums in the southwest honestly i find found that people were sort of strikingly unaware um when i first started hearing my story of you know the pilot slave um the 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 people who told it would tell me that he was a flying tiger and I looked up the flying tigers and I said, okay, he definitely wasn't a flying tiger. And I started asking the experts and they would all tell me, oh, you know, flying tigers is sort of this catch-all phrase yeah, in, in China for the Fei Hu Dui. Like, you know, an American right. pilot in China during World War II was <laughs> a Fei Hu Dui, you know, yeah, yeah. Which, which sort of reflects a, a, I don't want to say, a level of, I don't want to say ignorance, but sort of a lack of knowledge. Um, the hump pilots... I, I don't know. I mean, there is some popular understanding that, you know, they were here, that it, that it's that these these pilots represented the last great era of Sino-U.S. cooperation. Um, what I found more interesting is this handful of amateur historians down in um, down in the Southwest. Um, you find there are like probably only a couple dozen of these people or at, at most a hundred or a couple hundred who have dedicated their lives to sort of historical treasure hunting. You know, there's been, I think people um, in America at least are sort of unaware of the, the absolute lack of closure to so many episodes during World War II, during that time. Um, and these people in China have a little bit like me become obsessed with with sort of sorting sorting through these things and trying to find that closure and what they told me is that and I, I met many of them what they told me is that they're they're attracted to these stories because they represent a degree of ideological clarity you know they're the good guys and they're the bad guys and 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 there's this important mission whereas in Chinese society now you know, there's so much gray um so I can certainly see what's is, attractive about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's yeah. part of why we love the Second War so much. So many of us, there's that 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 moral clarity, right? But it's but it's harder here. It's harder to work outside of the system, yeah. and it's harder to you know seek truths that may um, contradict the official opinion or the the party line. And so, so yeah, it, it is like historical treasure hunting in the West, plus this added dimension of official scrutiny, which makes it a, a lot harder and, and honestly, in my opinion, a lot more interesting. Well, we, we mm. wish you both tremendous luck in your, in your historical treasure hunting, Melinda and John. And thanks so much for taking the time <laughs> to talk to us. Uh, we look forward to having both of you back on soon. Uh, before we take our leave of you, let's make some recommendations, shall we? Uh, but first, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. You can follow SupChina on Facebook at facebook.com slash SupChina News or on Twitter at, at SupChina News. If you like the Cynical Podcast, please take a couple of minutes and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a, it's a good way to spread the word about us. Now, on to recommendations. David, why don't you kick us off? Oh, so I'm Jeremy, right? Yeah, I forgot. Right, you're Jeremy. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. I'd like to rep- recommend um, a series of videos that um, are on, uh, I guess they're on, they're on Chinese media. Uh, they have a WeChat account, uh, in fact. But I, I watch them on YouTube. YouTube is great. The, all Chinese state media is now on YouTube. Yeah, everything. Yeah, it's amazing. Which is ironic because they block it, and yet they put all their state media on it. It's the, it's the easiest, best way to get all this, all, this, all this TV series, everything. So this is on YouTube. It's a YouTube channel, and it's called Zuoyou Shipin. Left, right, left, right, Shipian, historical short videos. And it's just an amazing collection of 15-minute, 10-minute short videos with some of the most amazing archival footage of, of World War II, of, of, of you know, the, the very earliest uh, films and uh, clips from the, the late, from the late Qing Dynasty in the 20s and 30s. Oh, wow. Uh, 
And there are things like uh, there is there's a lot of stuff about language, which is why I found it and I geek out on it. Uh, there's little short clips of the last emperor Pui speaking Mandarin. Uh, there's clips about the origins of Putonghua, where they show clips of the earliest uh, sound clips of people speaking Beijing dialect and other accents. Uh, a short film about um, how Lu Xun and Qian Xuantong and Mao Zedong all hated the Chinese characters and wanted to abolish them. And they have cool uh, images of the Guomindang peop- uh, soldiers teaching the troops uh, Popo Mofu uh, probably a week after it had been invented. <laughs> it's so cool. It's amazing stuff, you know. Uh, they have a, a, a neat little video about Hu Shi who uh, was promoting something he called Da Nai Nai Zhu Yi. Not not as in grandmother, but in breasts. And uh, he, he believed that Chinese Chinese women, yes, big breastism, big boobism, maybe you should say. He was he was concerned that Chinese women were were binding their chest, binding their bosoms for to keep this slim, attractive figure that was that was more uh, sexy, I guess, or, or more attractive back then. And he was an advocate of letting it all hang out. You know, don't bind your breasts, let it hang out. Don't wear bras, don't wear anything, because he said it was unhealthy and it would cause the breasts not develop and they couldn't produce enough milk for the children. So he, this is who sure yeah. <laughs> telling women. And there's a clip. There's clips about this that shows all this stuff and on and on I could I, I just can't say enough about this site the actual in historical information in the videos is is not that uh, you know accurate and historically valid but it doesn't really matter because whatever they're doing they, they augment it with right. these amazing source material I don't know where they get these these film oh, that's archives right. Right, you just if you search, it's unfortunately well, it's all in Chinese or no English subtitles. Right. We'll, so you have to we'll, actually. We'll put a link but on to YouTube, on, there's on a the podcast. There's page. a channel you can you can subscribe to it. It's a channel, and then you can just see them all. So it's soyo shi pian. Okay, right? wow, oh, that's a f- fantastic recommendation. That's why we have this section, Indeed. David. Thank you so much, Melinda. You're up next. What do you have for us? Well, I I recommend two books. Um, one of them actually is very appropriate for this podcast because it covers. Uh, well, it's the story of Dick Cole's War. In fact, that's the title of the book. Um, it's written by Dennis Ockerstrom. And Dick Cole is the last surviving Doolittle Raider who just turned 102. But he was also a hump pilot and an air commando in 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 the Asian theater. Oh, wow. And so he sort of has seen it all. He's He's an amazing guy. Um, I just saw him a few months ago. He's still got a, an incredible sense of humor, and this is like a rollicking tale about his life. And and so uh, that's one of them. And then the second book is about the Doolittle Raiders. It's a thick book. It's written by James Scott, and it's called Target Tokyo. And it tells the story of the Doolittle Raiders, um, some of which we already no, but he also digs out a lot of really good stuff from American missionary sources because, you know, when these Americans fell out of the sky and the Chinese didn't know what to do with them or where to bring them, a lot of times they sort of hooked them up with foreign, with Western missionaries yeah, yeah. who documented quite a bit of their interaction. And so these missionaries' accounts are a big part of the book. And it's it's a good book. Terrific. Too. Great. We'll, we'll make sure to put links up to both of those. John, what do you have for us? Um, so what, one book, I would, it's also a book um, that I would recommend is, I just finished reading it. It's called Flowers of the Killer Moon by David Gran. Mm-hmm. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. It's also sort of a historical mystery about um, a Native American tribe called the Osagi who were um, in, I think, southwest Oklahoma um, during the early 20th century. And they struck oil beneath their ancestral land and for a time, they were the the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Um, and then uh, the murders started. Uh, they started they started dying sort of mysteriously. And and David Grant is just a an unbelievable writer. Um, and and he frames it as sort of this historical detective tale, figuring out what what happened to them and this this real what what amounted to a, a mass atrocity that we don't learn about in schools. And so just an, an amazing, amazing read. Oh wow, that sounds that sounds wonderful. Oh wow. I'm gonna rush out and get that one. That's right up my alley. Great stuff. 
Okay, great. I'm going to finish this off with uh, a recommendation of a long article and a short book. The long article is, you've already read it, I'm sure, Evan Osnes' New Yorker Tour de Force, The Risk of Nuclear War with North Korea, oh, yeah. uh, where he, he right. talks about his uh, recent trip to the Hermit Kingdom. It's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you know, this is why we love him. This is the writing is great. The the the, the thinking is great. Uh, it's it's an amazing piece. The short book is the FT columnist, the U.S. based columnist Edward Luce, uh, the retreat of Western liberalism. I don't agree with everything that he says. I'm actually gonna have lunch with him in a couple of days, and so we're gonna talk this out. But uh, I don't agree with with uh, his entire analysis of of so-called identity politics. Uh, he, he kind of falls into the Mark Lilla camp on that. Uh, and I think he's been kind of roundly, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I just finished that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates article, uh, The First oh, White yeah. President, which uh, I should right. also recommend that. That's that's just fantastic. If you want yeah. uh, something, you know, sort of a, a pretty irrefutable uh, refutation of that kind of identity politics as, you know, the Democratic Party sin kind of belief that's that's out there in in the world these days. Uh, But Luce's, where Luce is great is talking about that kind of massive post-Cold War amnesia where we've sort of forgotten uh, a a history. We've, we've, We've just forgotten about the, you know, these are familiar old themes for me, but, uh, the contingency of, of our liberal polities and their, their very fragility. Uh, it's really very powerfully written and very short. You can, you know, get through it in a couple of hours. Anyway, Melinda, John, thanks once again for joining us. I mean, great, great stuff. I'm, I'm really anxious to read, to hear what's next for both of you. And we'll see you soon in Beijing, I hope. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Kaiser. David, it's and been David. too long, and uh, I'm let's, I'm planning a trip back there in around you know Twinsia, so and we'll Great. hang out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's get together. Quick thanks to where we are here, Brian, Absolutely. my friend Brian Hewson from the New Zealand Embassy here has given us his shared with us his his whiskey and his Wi-Fi. Wow, whiskey and Wi-Fi. Uh, the, That's those are the two yes. things that that are hard to come yes. by these days in Beijing. <laughs> And we just avoided spilling some in one of one of the other. So, okay, <laughs> great Kaiser, so much fun. Great, to, great to talk to you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash subchina news and follow us on Twitter at subchina news. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.